I've missed Mark chapter 5. <clears throat> I have not missed coughing, however. Um, this, uh, what we're going to do today is part of a, a larger event, and we're all going to cover part of it, and then next week will be the second part of it. That's why this is called uh, Jesus, My Only Hope, Part 1, because next week is Part 2. All right. So I'm not going to read uh, everything that happens here. We're going to read from 21 to 34. <clears throat> and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come. And lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was not better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowds pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith, has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Father, bless us and keep us by your word proclaimed, understood, and believed. Uh, may those who believe you know your face shines upon them, that you are gracious to them, Turn towards us and give us peace, though our lives are filled with turmoil and conflict. Express your great and abiding love to your people in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <coughs> there are many sentences that are famous in um, cinematic history. And one of them is, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my last, sorry, I want to make sure I get it right, you're my only hope, I want to make sure, because I get last and only gone bouncing around in my brain right now. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. Spoken, of course, by Princess Leia 
who is about to be abducted by the empire, which seeks to bring all of the planets under its totalitarian control, who now possess the technology of the Death Star, and she is looking for help from a reclusive former general who lives in a cave on a desert planet. That's exactly who I'd be looking to as my only hope. Well, she was wrong, as we're going to see in some sense, um, although she was also, in another sense, right. Today we're going to look at two people who have very little hope. Their hope is only now rested in one person for one thing. And so as we kind of look at this, we're going to look at it in terms of some questions to help us understand this. And, and I want us to start with the question of why did these two people seek Jesus? And seek him they did. Uh, but let's remember where we are. It's been a little while since we've been in Mark chapter 5. Uh, but Jesus has just returned from the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the other side of the Sea of Galilee is where the Gentiles are. And so uh, Jesus has gone to basically an unclean land, and he's gone to unclean people, and he met a man filled with an unclean spirit who was living in an unclean place, even more unclean than just the fact that there was Gentiles there, because he was living among the tombs. He was doing unclean things. He was cutting himself, and the flow of blood made him further unclean. I mean, you can't get more unclean than the demoniac. And yet Jesus healed him, cast the, the, all of these uh, demons out of him. They went into the unclean animals, the pigs, uh, who then raced over the cliff and drowned in the Sea of Galilee. And instead of the people of the Gerasenes rejoicing over the fact that their former friend had been delivered from the demons, uh, they were angry at Jesus and they begged him to leave. And so Jesus has, has gotten in the boat, crossed the Sea of Galilee, gone back to uh, where the, you know, the Galilee. Okay, we're not sure what city he was outside of. It was most likely Capernaum, but we're not sure exactly. And there is where uh, Mark picks up events. He reminds us that even as Jesus arrives, there's a crowd awaiting for, waiting for him, and <clears throat> he almost can't get off the boat. Amongst the people that is there at the, the, the seashore that is awaiting Jesus is a synagogue ruler by the name of Jairus. And I always want to say Jairus, and I don't know why. Maybe you're like me. But Jairus is there. And as a synagogue ruler, what Jairus would do is schedule who would be teaching at the synagogue. And he would also be involved in the process of examining what that rabbi said. Okay. We see hints of this in 1 Corinthians 14. Okay. Prophecies were given in, in the early church, and the elders of the church would then examine them and say, this is true and this is false. Okay, exercising their uh, judicial powers uh, with regard to the teaching that was going, taking place within the early church service. And that's, Jairus was one of those guys. 
for the synagogue, where he, he would be scheduling rabbis like Jesus, and then he would be evaluating what they said and telling the people what was right and what was wrong. So he was a man of great influence, of great power, of great respect within this community, and here he is at the seashore waiting for Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, he breaks through the crowd, he falls at his feet, and he implores him earnestly or begs him. Imagine that for a moment. To everyone else who's around, they they see one of the most respected men within their religious community break through the crowd, fall on his face before Jesus, and beg him. This is a desperate man. Something is going on uh, that is so bad, so serious, so important, that he in many ways seems to disgrace himself before these people. He is at the end of his rope. And the problem, as he lays it out before Jesus, is that my little daughter is at the point of death. Now, we know from later in the story that she's 12. And so this phrase, little daughter, is not about her age. Okay, I mean, when I look at Micah, who's 12, oh, she's hiding behind someone else back there. I don't think of her being little. But in the words of Archie Bunker, she's my little girl. That's the sense. The affection, the endearment that he has for his daughter is conveyed by that sense, uh, sorry, that, that phrase, my little daughter, this person that I cherish, this person that I love, she is at the point of death. He has exhausted every other hope that he can possibly imagine. It's most likely that he sought out doctors. That he probably, as a religious man, had been fasting and praying. And he had likely called the other synagogue rulers to join him in prayer and to lay hands on her, similar to what we see in James chapter 5. And none of this has worked, and so he goes to Jesus. Jesus is his last and only hope. Everything else has seemed to fail for this synagogue ruler. We have a second person. We have a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And so uh, the the man represents an immediate need, a crisis that's got to be resolved. But here is a woman who has suffered for 12 years. Long-term, not ending. It's not a crisis in the sense of something has to happen right now, but she sure wished something had happened within the last 12 years. She's not a hemophiliac with a cut. We uh, probably what's going on here is as uh, um, <clears throat> as Rachel said in Genesis 32, the way of women has come upon her, but it stayed. She probably had some sort of problem, maybe cancer or a fibroid or something uh, that meant that she continued to bleed. That her menstrual cycle was not a cycle, but it just stayed for 12 years. And so you have a woman who physically is weak. A woman who ceremonially is unclean, uh, as we see in uh, Leviticus 15 uh, with the discharge of blood. She's been unclean, uh, unable to worship for 12 
years. And when you're unclean, you're also not close to other people. So there's similar to what we saw with the leper, there's a large degree of, of um, just alienation and a, and a sense of not belonging and no one can touch you lest they also become unclean for a time. And I'm sure people would do that, but still, you're isolated. But not only that, but we see from the text that she has seen doctors. She's seen so many doctors that she spent all of her money. Not a husband's money, her money. Makes you wonder if the husband has uh, kicked her to the curb, adding to um, her experience of aloneness. She's done everything she can imagine, and she's still unclean. The Talmud has a a few uh, prescriptions for someone in her particular condition, and um, they may seem strange to us, but they are strange. Uh, One is to have a goblet of wine mixed with powder compounded from rubber, almum, and garden crocuses. That sounds like that's going to heal you, right? I mean. The second one, a dose of Persian onions. Okay, got to be Persian onions. Cooked in wine, administered with the summons. Arise out of your flow of blood. And so it's almost like a magic potion with a spell that is uh, spoken with it. It seems like a very strange thing to find in the Talmud. And the third one that we find in the Talmud that I found mentioned is that carrying the ash of an ostrich egg in a certain kind of cloth. None of these seems suitable for healing this particular woman, and yet she most likely paid the money to have these things done to her and more. She has exhausted every other hope. And now news has come to her of Jesus and all of the miracles that he's doing. And perhaps hope has been revived in her. Both of these people whether it's the short term or whether it's been the 12 years, both of these people have tried everything they possibly could and Jesus was their last hope. The point here, I think, is that we have to recognize that Jesus was their only hope, even though they're treating Him as, a sense, a last resort. And I want us to think of that for a moment. Uh, don't we try to solve our problems on our own? In our own wisdom? In our own strength? In our own experience? Uh, Until they get to be too much for us, too big, too unwieldy, whatever. And, and, And then and only then do we go to Jesus? Now, I don't mean... I, I, don't hear me saying you shouldn't think about your problems and shouldn't try to solve your problems. Uh, but what I'm saying is, is that we should recognize that Jesus should be brought into the equation much earlier. Not at the end, but at the beginning. I mean, think about Princess Leia for a moment. She has been part of this rebellion against the empire for years. And all of these things have been going on And it's only now, as she's about to fall into the clutches of Darth Vader, that she 
sends her droid to seek out Obi-Wan Kenobi. He was not only, well, an only hope, but the subtext is he's a last resort. The last person that she's trying. So Jesus is our only hope, not our last resort. Well, a second thing that comes up is, what do they want for, from Jesus? What are they looking for here as they approach him in their different ways? Uh, Jairus' request is, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. He wants his daughter to live. Now, it's interesting because, again, this is the contrast with the people of the uh, Gerasenes. They sent Jesus away. They begged Jesus to go away. This man is begging Jesus to come to his house and to help his daughter. The word that is translated as made well is probably better translated as saved or delivered. For those of you who uh, know a smidge of Greek or any Greek at all, sozo. That word for salvation, you know, if you were if you were an old De Garmo and Key fan, you know, Commander Sozo in the charge of the uh, well, I can't remember what brigade it was, but it was playing on the charge of the Light Brigade. Sozo, salvation, deliverance. It can refer to earthly deliverance, but it also refers to uh, eternal salvation. What he wants is his daughter to be delivered. He wants her to be saved from death because the sting of death is poised like a scorpion. Like a scorpion. That thing's always, it's always like way behind me. Way behind me. Oh, well, don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. The sting of death is poised like a scorpion, ready to, to bite into his flesh with the death of his daughter. And he wants her to be delivered, as well as himself to be delivered from the sting of death. He wants his little girl to live. And this is a picture of salvation beyond earthly deliverance. Jairus has some faith that Jesus can do what no one else can because Jairus is not ignorant of all of the reports that have been going around. And it didn't matter until now. And so so he shows up to Jesus. The woman. If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Same word, sozo, deliverance. She is thinking that she is desiring deliverance from uh, this condition which has robbed her of probably almost everything that matters in life. She wants a life. She wants earthly deliverance, but she may get more. She's there because of these reports. She has some level of faith uh, in the capacity, the ability of Jesus. Uh, But there also seems to be mixed in with this faith some of the superstition of the culture. If I just touch the garment. The idea that the... Um, the power and authority of a person can be um, 
manifested through their clothing. It's not something that we tend to think about, but it seems to be something that they thought about. And we see that reflected in uh, the accounts in Acts 5 and 19 that Marty read for us this morning. Uh, Shadows were passed over people and that suddenly they were made well. So she thinks that if she can just touch... And the word there more is grab. Okay, so it's not it's not like ET, falling home, you know. If I can just touch, or I can I can lay a hold of Jesus and his cloak. I can be delivered. Is what she's thinking here. She wants to be healed. But she wants to also be made clean, just like that leper. She wants, as I said, uh, to have a life again. To be able to go wherever she wants, whenever she wants. To talk to whomever she wants. To be held and to touch the people that she wants to touch because they're dear to her. Uncleanness, however reveals something, I believe, of our inner corruption. It, it points to not the guilt of sin, uh, but more the shame of sin. The shame of our condition as sinners. It, it points to the reality that, uh, that we feel worthless as sinners. Like we don't matter. Uh, like we don't count. Uh, we experience this. It's not completely disconnected from sin. We see these things uh, connected for us in Isaiah 64. But we have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment or an unclean garment. More technically, uh, menstrual rags. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away blown away because of our sins, uh, but also the fact that even the best things that we do are tainted by our sinfulness. She's experiencing the reality of her corruption and sinfulness by being unclean. Let's go a a small step farther in this. She's a woman. We don't think about that quite as much uh, in our culture. Uh, but woman, women then were essentially second-class citizens, um, low on the pecking order. Remember from last week that they, you know, you could be a Roman citizen as a woman, but you couldn't vote in a Roman election. Uh, your testimony as a woman would not hold up in court. Okay, you couldn't testify in court even if it was against someone who hurt you. Okay? She, she and this little girl are second class. Sort of insignificant uh, in, in the eyes of the law, and they probably felt that. What's also interesting to me as I, as I think about this text Obviously, when it talks about these mass healings, there are women that are involved, that are, that are healed. Um, 
we read about the fact that Mary Magdalene had demons cast out of her, but we don't have the account of it actually happening. Okay. This event, which has the healing of this woman, this unnamed woman, and the daughter of Jairus, are two out of three, three accounts of women being healed. So these are significant. These are very significant because they speak to the concern of Jesus uh, for even, so to speak, the least of these. Uh, In a culture that didn't care much about women, what we see here is a picture of Jesus caring about women. Let's not lose sight of that. But really, would Jesus respond? Would Jesus deliver this woman? Would Jesus deliver this girl? And we can all wonder that sometimes. We can all wonder, because of our inner corruption, if we matter to Him when life gets difficult. We can wonder when life is really hard if we matter to God. We can wonder if He actually hears our prayers. We can wonder these things. And part of that is the reality that as sinners, we are prone to hard thoughts of God. We are, we are prone to listen to the lies of the evil one represented there in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? God's really trying to keep something good from you. That's what He's doing. That's the lie of the evil one. And, and he's trying to get Eve to think that God is a hard taskmaster and not the loving God that he is, who provides everything she needs. And that same kind of thing rises in our own thoughts when life is hard. We begin to think what the disciples said when they were in the boat in the storm on the way to the place they didn't want to go on the other side of the sea. Don't you care that we're going to die? That's what we sometimes think about God. If we're honest, right? One of the the things I don't like about preaching, I love almost everything about preaching, but the thing I don't like about preaching is that often I experience something tied to the text over the week I'm going to preach it. And so this seemed to be the week where just everything kind of, it wasn't big stuff. It was all little stuff, but it would be like boom, 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 boom. Some of you saw on my Facebook where, you know, I had a a Basel faulty morning where it was just a series of things that went wrong, you know, and it's just like the building frustration and rage within me. Um, and it wasn't just that morning. It was, it was a whole bunch of that stuff. And then uh, something happened, and, and um, I just lost it. I was ready to cry. It's like one more thing. It was the last straw that broke the camel's back, and I'm the camel. And those are the moments we wonder, does God care? And of course he does. But in our sinfulness, we're tempted to believe he doesn't. 
Jesus is our only hope for deliverance, not just from the, the hardship, but also from the hard heart that encounters the hardship. So Jesus is our only hope for deliverance. So Jesus is going to visit Jairus' daughter with the crowd that's following him, and we're going to you know, get to the house next week. But what happened to the woman? We're going to focus on her. She reaches out. She somehow works her way through the crowd, uh, which is jostling Jesus. She reaches out. She grabs a hold of his cloak, and Mark says that immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that something had changed, that she was healed of her disease. In other words, an immediate, miraculous healing took place while Jesus wasn't paying attention to her. She was delivered by the healing of this affliction. We see this happening again, as I mentioned, not just in Acts 5 and 19, but we see in Matthew 14. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent all around to that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Similarly, in Mark 6, probably a a parallel passage, and wherever he came, came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. And she's one of these people. But she's singled out. Now, it's interesting. Despite the fact that all of these people are probably pushing into Jesus, this is like you know, going to a ball game, you know, in those moments when you're, you're exiting or entering and everyone's just sort of piled up upon each other. And, uh, you know, I, those are the moments I hate. That's when my introversion really just, just explodes. Okay? I want to watch the game. I don't want this stuff. Okay? They're, they're bumping into everybody and into Jesus. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus recognizes that power has left him to heal. One person. Not everyone who's bumping into him. But one person, this is, so he's aware that something happened. He feels weakened, so to speak. And so he stops to the consternation of everybody else because they've got to go heal this dying girl. He stops and asks, who touched my garment? He wants to stop so that this person can glorify God. But no one else around him understands why he's doing this. This is a reminder. You will not understand everything Jesus does in your life. He stops. He asks. The disciples, again, they state the obvious, but yet they're kind of clueless themselves. They don't get it. Jesus, everyone's around you. Everyone's pushing into you. Why would you ask who touched me? Jairus is silent, but likely growing increasingly impatient because his little girl is waiting. And finally, we don't know how long it took, uh, 
but Jesus waits her out. She comes forward in fear and trembling. She falls down before him, and she tells him the whole truth, which is how Mark knows everything that he's told us about this woman. Now, it would be easy to think that her deliverance is about touching the cloak. But her deliverance was really from Jesus. And Jesus cuts to the heart of this by saying to her, and, and, and note first, before he says to my daughter. He speaks in familial terms. Uh, he said that to one of the, the people he healed earlier, my son. And now he speaks to her, my daughter. There's, there's tenderness here. Value here. She's important to him. Uh, he's communicating with this, my daughter. I guess he could have said, my little girl. But he gets to the point. Your faith has made you well. Or, once again, it's that, that word that's better translated, in my opinion, delivered. It's your faith that has delivered you. Though her faith was imperfect, her faith was enough. Because it's not about the quality of your faith, it's about the object of your faith. And she was looking to Jesus, even in the midst of the, the mixture of some superstition tossed in there. Uh, she's looking to Jesus, and it's Jesus who heals her because she believes that he can. Faith's effectiveness is because of Jesus, not because of uh, faith's strength or purity. It doesn't have to be like ivory soap. You know, remember what it is now all of a sudden. There you go. The commercial worked on him. Okay? 99.4. There's not like some sort of little meter. And if your faith is, is this pure, it's good. But if it's this pure, it's bad. And so I think there's an invitation here for us not to wait for perfect and pure faith, but rather to exercise whatever faith you have in Jesus to go and seek deliverance in Christ. And I want, I want to remind you from the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 that every time it says, and so-and-so believed God, they acted on that belief. The, the focus is on um, faith believing what God said and acting on what God said. And so she didn't just say to herself, I believe Jesus could heal me. On the basis of that faith, she sought out Jesus so he could heal her. You, you understand? Don't wait for everything to align. And, and don't think that if God does not heal you in the present, it doesn't mean that you didn't believe enough. Don't, belie, don't believe the lie of the prosperity gospel that if you only believe hard enough, you'll get whatever it is you want, and therefore you feel guilt because you didn't believe hard enough or good enough or pure enough or whatever it is. John Newton has said, and, and, and 
trying to communicate Romans 8, 28. Nothing that we have is unnecessary. And nothing needful is withheld. And so even as we, we cry out for deliverance, we recognize, from our earthly circumstances, we recognize that God's in control. And he has a bigger purpose in what we're experiencing than we can really put together. Those unresolved questions from that song are there. And I want us to recognize that Jesus is the only hope for wholeness in salvation because he, he bids her by. He says, go in peace uh, or shalom or go in wholeness and be healed of your affliction. He wants her to walk in the reality of this newness of life that Jesus has just imparted to her out of His sheer mercy and kindness. And He's the only hope we have to receive sheer mercy and kindness so that we can be whole again. Well, Princess Leia was desperate, unable to help herself, so she appeals to the shadowy and reclusive Obi-Wan Kenobi. This aging general was, in as many ways, her last resort. But what she discovers is that this brings her new friends who rescue her, deliver her, and also help stop the totalitarian empire, deliverance on many fronts. The people in our text are desperate like Princess Leia. They're seeking deliverance like Princess Leia. And I think like Princess Leia, they get more than they bargain for. They get a salvation. Think, though. None of that would happen wasn't dying. None of that would happen if the woman hadn't been bleeding for 12 years. Think of your own crises. He puts you where you don't want to be. So you'll end up where you need to be. And you need to be at the feet of Jesus like these two people. Let me say this again. He puts you where you don't want to be so you'll end up where you need to be. And where you need to be is at the feet of Jesus. The hardships you experience are meant to drive you to Jesus. That's what we see. They're not heroes, but we see that it's faith in the midst of these trials that brings these people to the feet of Jesus. Is that where you go? 
Jesus isn't simply a last resort, but He is the only hope for all that ails you. Let's pray. Father, I confess I am a stubborn man. I confess that um, I try to figure everything out in my own power, my own strength, my own wisdom, and that sometimes I lag in running to you and saying, help me. Sometimes I treat Jesus like my last resort as opposed to really the first place I need to go. So, Father, help us to respond in faith to the prompting of the Spirit to run to Jesus when life stinks. Help us to tune out the lies of the evil one, that you are hard, that you are merciless, or that you're uncaring and apathetic. Help us to believe uh, based on things like Psalm 139 and, and this passage that you care for your people. Help us to remember that you address us as sons, as we see in, in Hebrews 12. And that because you address us as sons, it implies that you care deeply about your people. And so help us to respond to you in light of that amazing truth. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.